from you and uh, be together with you today. Take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 19. Last year, we began a study in the book of Revelation and moving through uh, chapter by chapter, really verse by verse, and we pick up this morning with our study in chapter 19, uh, rejoicing in heaven, rejoicing in heaven. Now, I guess we should maybe reset the context a little bit since we took a break from this study to celebrate the birth of our Savior and the first of the year. Uh, the book of Revelation, if you've been with us in the study, if not, you can find it in the archives on our website. But if you've been with us in the study, you know that the book is predominantly prophetic. And uh, prophecy given to us by God tells us what will happen in the future. In fact, chapters 4 to chapter 21 are all prophetic. They're all telling us what will happen uh, in the future. Now, uh, John was told back in chapter 1, if you remember, to write down the things that he has seen, the things which are, and the things which will be, which is the threefold division of the book. And so when you get to chapter 4, I believe you find there revealed where things with the rapture of the church. Now, John in chapter 4 was uh, saw a vision, saw heaven open, and a voice said, come up here. I believe the very next prophetic event to happen is the rapture of the church. I believe in the pre-tribulation rapture trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments within two years. Read all that. We talked about all that. So I, I encourage you, if you want to catch up on those things, go look up the archives. Now, as God begins to judge Antichrist and, and his followers during the tribulation, when you get to chapter 17 and 18, which precedes 19, obviously, chapter 17 is a detailed description of God's judgment on false religion on earth. There will be the rise of a false prophet in the tribulation, and he will uh, capitalize on, on people's vulnerability in that time, and their blindness by their sin, and he will lead them to actually worship Antichrist. They will see him as a god, and they will worship him. This is what Satan has wanted all along, and he will do that uh, vicariously through Antichrist, and Satan will receive worship, Antichrist will receive worship. Chapter 17 describes how God will so how does God define false religion? Anything other than Jesus Christ. That's what he says. Anything other than faith in Jesus Christ, that's false religion. I don't care how you paint it. I don't care how you dress it up. I don't care if you put a bow on it and make it look real good. It doesn't matter how, how attractive it is. As a matter of fact, if a religious system seems really attractive to those from the world, you're really going to shut down and convert. It's false. Jesus Christ, faith in Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, his burial, his resurrection is the only means of salvation of the forgiveness of sins. God will judge all false religion during the, the tribulation, and, and you'll find that, that the Bible calls that false religion a harlot, and he leads the world astray into the lake of fire, where his brother will be killed. Then when you move into chapter 18, uh, God moves his focus, and there's a description there of not only will God judge the false religion under the kingdom of Antichrist, but he will judge the kingdom of Antichrist itself called Babylon. We described several weeks ago, Babylon is a term that refers all the way back to man's first organized rebellion against God. Uh, you know, a guy named Nimrod after the flood. He led a rebellion against God, built a tower, the Tower of Babel. Uh, God confused their language and scattered them. That same rebellious attitude is in the Bible. That same rebellion against God, that same resistance to God will, will culminate again in the tribulation because Antichrist will have no respect. He will completely rebel against God and lead the world to resist God. God will judge the kingdom of Antichrist. He will judge it, uh, of course, in its religious component, but he will judge it 
in his economic component, and he will judge it in his political and military component. God will judge his kingdom and destroy it. Now, when we come to chapter 19, here's what you find. The picture transitions from the description of all those things that are going on on earth back to heaven. What do you think is going on in heaven while God's judging wickedness on the earth? Celebration. In heaven, there's rejoicing. In heaven, there's singing. In heaven, there is praise that God will judge wickedness and bring justice. And that's what we pick up in chapter 19. So look at the first three verses of chapter 19. There is praise in heaven. After these things, pause there for a minute. You say, boy, we didn't get far. I know, three words. After these things. In the Greek, it's a phrase that means chronologically. And that's important for you to understand because this phrase is used, this exact same Greek phrase and structure is used throughout the Bible to always describe a chronological event. So what John's saying is, is after these things, meaning chapter 17 and 18, when God specifically judged, judged the Antichrist, his kingdom, and the false religion in the world, connected to that, matter of fact, based on that, following that chronologically, there's this great rejoicing in heaven. So we know the reason for the rejoicing is God's judgment on the wickedness on the earth. Okay? After these things, John said, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Verse 3, again they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. John sees this uh, celebration in heaven as God allows him to see that. There is praise and worship of all the angelic hosts and all those that are in heaven. Now, why are they praising God? In these three verses, they describe why they are rejoicing over God judging the wickedness of the world. And the first one is salvation has come. Now, some of you might say, well, I thought salvation had already come. We're saved. And that's true. If you're, if you're born again by faith in Jesus Christ, you have eternal life. And eternal life means exactly that. You have been forgiven of your sin. God's given you his, his righteousness and place the eternal life of Jesus Christ. You're in Christ, in fact. His life is your life. So you have eternal life. You say, well, if I already have salvation, why did they say salvation has come here? Because salvation has not come in its fullness yet. You are as saved as you will ever be, but listen to me very carefully. You are not yet what you will be. Amen? I'm not yet what I will be. Praise God. Matter of fact, the Bible clearly says that one of the things going to happen when Jesus comes back and rapture church, we're going to get a resurrection body. And it's going to look better than this one. Amen. Now, some of y'all look really good, and you're thinking, well, I don't need an improvement. Well, some of us do, okay? Some of us need some work, and, uh, and God's going to do the work. But we're going to get a new body. So, so the fullness of my salvation is not yet complete. In fact, in the book of Ephesians, Paul said that the Holy Spirit has sealed us unto the day of redemption. It's the same idea. You say, well, I thought I'm already redeemed. Well, you are, but not fully, not completely. In other words, your soul is saved, your sins are forgiven, and you are as saved now as you ever will be. But God has so much more in store for us. And so in heaven, these, the, these hosts in heaven, if you will, are rejoicing and praising God because they see the fulfillment of all that God has promised. They see in the judging of Antichrist and the judging of wickedness in the earth that God is preparing to bring the kingdom of Christ of which we are, are participants in, and so that causes all of heaven to rejoice because they see that God is about to bring his plan to fruition. 
And the second reason it says here that this host in heaven is rejoicing, not only because they see the end is near and that the fullness of all God has promised will be fulfilled, but it says God's judgments are righteous and true. You see that? They're true and righteous. Now, we might think initially, how could a bunch of redeemed and saved people in heaven, angels, cherubim, seraphims, and angelic hosts innumerable, rejoice at such destruction that God's raining down on them? I mean, at first you might think that. You think, man, God is just, because if you read the book of Revelation, God is going to pound these folk. I mean, he is, he is going to pour out wrath and judgment, and multitudes of people are going to die. I mean, hosts beyond anything the world's ever seen, God's going to kill them. You say, man, that's harsh. No, it's real. You say, well, how, how could heaven, how could we rejoice over that? Because God's judgments are true and righteous. Because they're true and righteous. Let me, let me put it in perspective for you. The people who will live during the tribulation, the people who will go into that period, will have more opportunity to be saved than any other generation of humans to ever live on the planet. You say, how can you say that? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you. During the tribulation, that generation will witness divine intervention in the world like you see and read in the Old Testament. I mean, they, they will see God supernaturally do things in the world. I mean, just one example, Antichrist is going to end up, God's going to allow him to kill the two witnesses, and they're going to lay in the street for three days. What's going to happen after three days? Them dudes going to get up and start walking around. Do you think you ought to pay attention to that? I mean, do you think that you think that's a sign, like that the God of heaven who's judging everything just raised two guys from the dead who've been dead for three days, and then, and then calls them up to heaven? Yeah, that's a sign, okay? If you miss it, you're blind, all right? Listen, there's going to be 144,000 Jews that are sealed by God that Antichrist isn't going to be able to touch, and they're going to be preaching all over the world. You don't think that's a sign? You think that's a sign? Supernatural power of God. Witnesses all over the world. At one point, we read, an angel, an angel is going to fly through the heavens preaching the gospel to the whole world. That's your sign, okay? That's, that's, your, that's your word. So here, that, here's the picture. That generation and those who follow the Antichrist and take the mark of the beast and those who reject God will be of such a reprobate mind that the only cure is judgment. Righteousness and truth. And God will judge them for that. And listen, when we see that from heaven, and we will see it from heaven, we will rejoice. Not because we rejoice that people are being destroyed, because we deserve the same. But we rejoice because the righteousness of God has now finally prevailed. We rejoice because the wickedness of Antichrist and the wickedness of man's rebellion is being subdued and being put away. And so it will cause all of heaven to rejoice. And listen, this is it not much like today. We wish as Christians no harm on anyone. In fact, we plead for all lost men and women to come to Christ. But do we not rejoice when God's righteousness succeeds and wickedness fails? Do we not? Do we, well, listen, when a lost man or woman or boy or girl or young person comes to faith in Jesus Christ, do we not rejoice? We're not, we're not rejoicing 
just because now they have eternal life, and that's a good thing to rejoice. But we rejoice now because, because wickedness has been reduced because a lost man or woman, young person, boy or girl, it now has a relationship with Jesus Christ, and now righteousness will reign. Now the kingdom of Christ is further expanded on the earth. We rejoice in that. Listen, you can't be saved and not rejoice in righteousness. You can't be saved and not rejoice when wickedness is reduced or subdued. So in the grandest scale from heaven, when God judges the wicked world, we're going to rejoice. We're going to rejoice with the angels and all the hosts of heaven. And then finally, finally in these three verses, it says that God's judgment is just. Look at verse, four, at verse 2, the end of verse 2. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Justice. We all want justice, don't we? When we see something wrong, we see someone uh, harming us, we want justice. God's going to bring justice. The Jews, as a nation, as his people, and we're going to talk about that in detail tonight from Psalm 129, so I invite you to come back. The Jews have been the most maligned group of people ever to live on the face of the planet. The most persecuted, the most abused, the most hunted, the most hated. We'll talk about that tonight in detail. God's going to bring justice for them. Why? Because they're the apple of his eye. They're his people. In the Old Testament, they're his wife. Unfaithful wife, but they're his wife. In the New Testament, the church is the bride of Christ, the very body of Christ. We're his chosen, his redeemed. From the founding of the church, the blood of Christians has been shed, martyred. I mean, the church has been persecuted. There have been potentates and kings who thought themselves able to wipe out the church and burn all the Bibles and destroy God's word. But guess what? We're still here and the Bible's still here and they're all gone. But the church has been persecuted. Blood has been shed. Nero, Nero killed Christians for sport. And all throughout the centuries, you can check human history and see where the church has been persecuted. And did we not see in chapter 5 of this very book that the martyrs, the Christians, during the tribulation will be slaughtered in numbers the world has never seen. And their souls under the altar in heaven cried out to God for what? For justice. God, when will you make it right? Remember what God said to them? Enjoy being here for a while. Rest and relax. That's a paraphrase. Because there's more like you that are coming. But when that's done, I'll take care of it. Guess what chapter 17 and 18 mean? God's taking care of it. And in chapter 19, there's rejoicing because, listen, God's justice judges those who have, have perpetrated and broken his laws and done that which is unjust. Do we not see in society today injustices go on every day? We see things happen that are not right, and it seems there's no accountability. Well, I got news for you. God has perfect record. And justice is coming. No one's getting away with sin. Justice is coming. And so rejoicing in heaven. Now, not only do we see these characteristics of God's judgment that they rejoice, but we also see in verse 3 a characteristic that is, that is very important. Look at verse 3 again. Again they said, in heaven, hallelujah. Now notice this, her smoke rises up forever and ever. The judgment of God has three characteristics in that verse that are very important to understand. Number one. The judgment of God is final. I want that to sink in for a moment. 
The judgment of God is final. It says here that when God judges that generation in the tribulation, verses uh, chapter 17 and 18, and then the rejoicing in 19, it says her smoke rises up for how long? Forever. Now listen, you say, well, what does that have to do with us? Well, everything. Man or woman, young person, boy or girl, who understands the gospel and understands that they're lost and understands that they need a Savior, and you online, listen to this very carefully. If you go through this life and you reject Jesus Christ and you die in your sin, you're going to go to hell. That's just a fact. If you read the Bible, I didn't write it. If you die without Jesus, you're going to hell. How long are you going to be there? Forever. Listen, it's final. It's final. That should be sobering. That should give you cause. Listen, if you're not saved, that ought to give you cause right now. That, that ought to cause you to really take inventory. Because if you go through this life and you die and you leave here without Jesus Christ, you will go to hell and there's no getting out. There's no recovery. In fact, that leads to the second point. When God's judgment falls, there's no appeal. There's, there's no higher court. Listen to me very carefully. There is no higher court. God's it. He has the last word. When God makes the adjudication, when God says guilty, and you didn't come to Jesus, and you didn't ask him to forgive you, and you didn't avail yourself of the grace of God which is available right now, and you end up in hell, there's no appeal. There's no being there a million years and going, God, can you appeal my case? It is final. It says right here, and they said, hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. God's judgment is forever. In the same way, God's salvation is forever. It's eternal, which leads to the third point here very quickly. There is only one way. Listen to me. Listen. There's only one way, one way to make sure you don't go to hell. There's only one way to be forgiven of sin. There's only one way. And God provided it. That's gracious of him, isn't it? One way, and that's Jesus Christ. There's no religious method, there's no works, there's no, no other faith, no wisdom, no knowledge. There's just Jesus. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. You need to really give this consideration. Salvation is only available in this life. This life right now. If you've never been saved, you're watching online, you're watching the video later, and you've never confessed your sin to God and asked by faith for Jesus Christ to forgive you, put your faith, surrendered your heart to Jesus. If you've never done that, the Bible says you are lost. If you've never been saved by faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible says you are still guilty of your sin. God's justice will catch up with you when you stand in front of him. You say, well, what should I do? Do the only thing that makes any sense. Come to Jesus. Ask God to forgive you. Turn away from your sin. You say, well, you know, Pastor, I like my life and I like my sin. Not enough to go to hell. There's nothing in this world that you could be involved in. No relationship. No pleasures. No money. There's nothing in this world worth eternity. Nothing. Be wise. Come to Jesus while you have opportunity because, listen, 
The only difference, the only, the only deliverance is Jesus Christ. And the only thing that will make a difference in your life is Jesus. Here's the bottom line, friends. Listen. If you die and you find yourself in hell like the, like the rich man in Lazarus in Luke 16, he died and found himself in torments. There was no pause. There was no in-between. He died and then he was in torment. You die and you find yourself there. You got nobody to blame but you. Nobody. You can't say, well, nobody told me. Well, I'm telling you. And now you know. And now you have no excuse. You find yourself in eternal judgment. You're going to spend eternity wishing you had listened. Can I say it? In, I don't know another way to say it. I would plead with you to get saved today. You end up in hell. It's your own fault. So don't do that, okay? Be wise. Don't do that. Now, as John sees this vision in heaven of celebration, he points out some specific groups. And this is important. I hope you find this stuff interesting. I mean, I'm not up here yelling, running around, screaming and hollering, but listen, this stuff is good for you, okay? You need to understand this. Look at verses 4 and 5. And God gives us this stuff for a reason. He said, And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. Now, why would God... Why, why would the Holy Spirit <clears throat> have John specifically note that there's 24 elders around the throne? I'm glad you asked. So I'm helping you with your own questions. Listen. We saw this group somewhere else, didn't we? Where we see them at? Back in chapter 4. In fact, I looked this up for you today. You ready? If you want to really know all the details about these 24 elders, May 3rd, 2020, the 12th study in this series, you'll find it on the archive, and you can go back and listen to that, and I talk extensively about these 24 elders. What we see in heaven here, and we're reminded of, is there's 24 thrones and 24 elders sitting on them around the throne of God, and these elders, if you remember, have crowns. They have crowns on their heads, and they have robes, and they're sitting on thrones around the throne of God. You say, well, who are these? They're the rapture church. That's who they represent. They represent you and me. Listen, you got to understand this. Every group of people who are saved from the beginning, from Adam until, until Jesus sets up his kingdom, are not all in the same group. Now, they're all saved, and we're all saved the same way. Listen to me very carefully. Old Testament saints are saved by faith, just like us. Church people are saved by faith. Tribulation saints will be saved by faith in Jesus, same way. But listen to me, Old Testament saints and Jews who are part of the nation of the Old Testament are not part of the church. And those saints who get saved in tribulation are not part of the church. The church is a unique group of people. And the kingdom of Israel, the nation of Israel, and the church are not the same. Everybody following me? So in heaven, what you find, what's this? In heaven's a whole bunch of saved people from different dispensations and eras in the history of mankind. Up in heaven, you got, you got, you got Adam, and you got Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, and David, and Solomon. You got all these Old Testament great saints, and Elijah, and Elijah... And some of them went up there without even dying, okay? So you got all these great saints who, who are with God from the Old Testament, but they're not in the church. They're not part of the bride of Christ. And then you get the New Testament, which the church began at Pentecost, and everybody who's been saved from Pentecost until Jesus wraps the church is part of the bride of Christ. The Old Testament saints aren't the bride of Christ. The nation of Israel is the wife of God. 
all spoken through the Old Testament, who was unfaithful. The bride of Christ is the church. Now, everybody who will get saved in the tribulation is not part of the church. And watch this. Listen to me. There will be people who will be saved in the millennial kingdom because Jesus will rule for a 1,000 years, and the people that go in the millennial kingdom are going to have children. And those children that are born will have to see Jesus with their eyes sitting on the throne in Jerusalem and put their faith in him and be saved. You say, well, will all of them do that? No, they won't. Isn't that amazing? That Jesus will be literally in his, in his resurrection body sitting on the throne in Jerusalem, and there will be people who will be born in the, in the tribulation or in the millennial kingdom who will not believe on him because at the end, Satan will be released and lead them in a rebellion. That's astounding, isn't it? You say, oh, man, if I could just see Jesus, we wouldn't help you. If you won't believe him now, you won't believe him then. It's faith. Here's the point. These 24 elders are sitting around the throne of God. It is the raptured church. It is the bride of Christ. And what it says is we are going to rejoice. And when God pours out his judgment on Antichrist and on a wicked world, we're going to fall down at his feet and we're going to worship him and cast our crowns at his feet. Matter of fact, church saints of the church age are the only ones in the whole Bible that are promised crowns. The only ones in the whole Bible that are promised to rule with Christ, which all of that represents thrones and crowns and the white robe means redeemed and pure. And so we see the church rejoicing. We will be there rejoicing. And then the four living creatures, remember them? Those things, I, I enjoy studying these creatures. We, don't, we just know what the Bible says about them. They're cherubim. They have six wings. And two of them, they cover their face, and two of them, they cover their feet. With two wings, they fly, and they circle the throne of God perpetually forever. You know what they say? Holy, holy, holy. Man, they just circle the throne of God going, man, God's holy. And I've pointed this out before. You know, if we did something like that, at some point it would just become rote. You know, we would just be, oh, it's my turn to say holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. Okay, and then you go around, and then it's, oh, my turn to say it again. That's not how that is in heaven. That's our sinfulness and our weakness. That's not how it is in heaven. Those creatures circle the throne of God, and I believe they see a new facet of God's glory perpetually all the time, and it just elicits from them, holy, holy, holy. It's elicited because of who God is, not rote words that they just say as they surround. Those same four creatures, when they see God, now listen, I don't, our minds can't comprehend how this structure is in heaven, but angels have ranks. There's higher angels and lower angels and angels. These four creatures, they're as close to God as you get, right? I mean, in, in proximity, because they're around the, where God, and they're circling the throne, holy, holy, holy. They're pretty close. And when they see God pouring out his justice and pouring out his judgment on sin, they fall down and worship too. They say, man, God, you're right. You're right. And you are just to do this. I can't say in strong enough terms, I don't know words to say for those who are watching and anyone that would be here and is not saved. You're a fool if you walk away from Jesus. I don't know. Is that strong enough? I mean, you're just foolish if you don't come to Christ. That's all I can tell you. It's going to cost you everything. Finally, let's finish with this. Look at verses 6 to 10. Now, here's the marriage supper of the Lamb. And, and we're certainly not going to have time to, to get in all the woods and all the weeds in this, but look at it beginning in verse 6. John said, I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude. He always says that. There's, there are so many creatures and redeemed people in heaven. He just says, man, this is a great multitude. Angels innumerable and creatures. I, man, heaven's going to be magnificent, you know? I mean, just the, the learning and the looking around and, and you know, and, and I think we, 
I think you and I are going to, you know, we're going to get there and we're going to see something. We're going to look at one another and go, man, I never thought of that. You're right. I never thought I never thought of a lot of this stuff. Listen to what he says here. I heard, as it were, the voice of great multitude. As the sound of many waters, as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Praise is still going on because God's reign. Verse 7. Then it says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. Verse 8. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Verse 9. Then he said to me, Right. Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now notice, there's a difference between the, the, the wife, the bride, and those who are called to be the guest. That's what I was saying just a minute ago. There's different groups and different dispensations of people who are saved, and they're not all the bride. Okay. Then he goes on to say in verse 9, Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. Verse 10. Now John, John then said, I fell down at the at his feet to worship him. So this messenger, this angel who's telling him all this stuff, John falls down to worship him. But the angel, the messenger said to me, see that you do it not that. I am your fellow servant and your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So John gets rebuked there for falling down before this angel. And he said, no, no, no don't do that. Worship God. I'm just, I'm just a servant like you. That's cool dialogue, isn't it? But in heaven. Let me tell you about this marriage supper of the Lamb. You and I, the, the, the redeemed of Christ in the church age are the bride of Christ. The Bible is completely clear about that. In fact, Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 11.2. Listen to this. Paul said to those Christians at Corinth, he said, for I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. He said, man, I'm jealous over you. Listen to what he said. For I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Paul said, man, I'm preaching the gospel, and you're getting saved, and I, and I am, I am through, through sharing the gospel, presenting this bride to Christ, this chaste virgin to Christ. Now, the marriage described here of the church and Christ is in the oriental terms of how they did marriage, and let me go over it very quickly with you. Number one, there was the betrothal period. And we've seen that in the New Testament, right? When Joseph, when Mary found out she was going to have Jesus, what was the relationship between her and Joseph, her future husband? The Bible says they were betrothed, right? Now, betrothal happened when the young man came uh, typically to the father and said, I want to marry your daughter, and the dad would set a dowry. And, and I'm glad Ronnie and Betty didn't do that because I was broke. We had trouble. But, if you, but you had to set a dowry, okay? So you had, to, you had to come and you had to give stuff. You had to make a payment. And so the, the prospective groom would make a payment to the family for a dowry, and then they were betrothed. Now listen, the betrothal in the Oriental wedding was binding. It was legally binding. To break up that betrothal took a writing of divorcement, which is, again, why when Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant before Gabriel came and explained to him that it really was of the power of God, he was going to put Mary away privately. Remember that? He didn't want to embarrass her. He didn't want to have her stoned. He, he loved her. But, uh, you know, she's pregnant, and we ain't married yet, and I know it ain't me, and so I'm going to have to put her away. But then Gabriel came and said, no, 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 God, the Holy Spirit did that. You marry her, uh, and, and she's going to have Jesus. And Joseph said, okay. But the fact is they were betrothed. Now, after the betrothal period, matter of fact, let me apply it to the church. When were we betrothed to Jesus? The minute you were saved, the moment you were saved. 
Why? Because the dowry was paid. Jesus paid for your sin. He went to the cross. He paid the price. So you were betrothed to Jesus Christ the moment you were saved. The church is betrothed to Jesus Christ the moment we're saved. Okay? He's paid the price. We're his. The relationship's there. Secondly, there was the presenting of the bride. So the groom at an appointed time would come and the bride would be presented to him. Now the presenting of the bride and the consummation of marriage, which is a uh, where they actually go through the ceremony, were close to one another, typically within days or a week. The bride would be presented. They would have these festivals. They would have the marriage feast. They would have the meals. All the family would come. And then the, then the official ceremony would happen. They would be married, and they would go away as husband and wife. Watch how this fits the church. We were betrothed to Jesus the moment we were saved. When are we going to be presented to Jesus? John just said it. Paul just said it. When we're raptured and we go to heaven... And, and we get our resurrection bodies and we get our robes and we get our crowns and we are, we are made completely pure, separated from sin. We are presented to Jesus, what, as the chaste virgin, pure and without sin. We can't be presented to Jesus till then because we're pretty messed up right now, aren't we? I mean, we, we, we aren't ready to meet Jesus, but when we're raptured, we will be. And then this marriage supper of the Lamb that John describes right here is the actual ceremony, the actual meal that we're going to share with Jesus for the consummating of the wedding while the tribulation is going on here during the tribulation. So John sees this marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, I like having, I, I, I don't know, I like having our fellowships and we eat over in the fellowship hall and it's always fun. And when this COVID thing's over, man, we're going to have a shindig. We're going to eat, we're going to fellowship and we're going to do it right, okay? We're going to make up for lost time. But I can only imagine what kind of feast is going to go on in heaven. I mean, the marriage supper of the Lamb. What kind of celebration is God going to put on because his bride is there and the bride of Christ is there? I, I, don't, I just, our minds can't even, can't even comprehend. But now again, I, can't, I have to do this. If you're lost, what, what in this world would make you want to miss that? I mean, what, what sin, what thing in this world would make you not want to be part of that? And God offers freely today. He says, hey, come to me and I'll save you. Come to me and I'll save you. Let me touch on one last thing. We've got about four minutes. He says in here, blessed are those who are called, right? Blessed are those who are called to attend the wedding. Those who attend are guests. They're not the bride. They're not the groom. They're guests. Probably one of, the, one of the great illustrations of that is in Matthew 25. And let me tell you, you have the ten virgins with their lamps and the oil. Remember that? Jesus gives this thing. The ten virgins who have their lamps and their oils who are waiting for the bridegroom to come for the wedding, they're not the bride. They're, they're waiting to go in as guests. If you read the whole story, Jesus said they're not the bride. They're not waiting for the groom to come get them. But listen, they're Jews who are invited to the wedding. How, how do they get into the wedding? Well, they got to get saved just like we do. They trust Jesus. They're born again, but they are, they are the nation of God. They're God's people, and they will be there when, when the church is wed to Christ. But they're the guests. They're not the bride. Listen, I, I'm pointing these things out simply. I know Sunday morning it's a lot of theology and doctrine, but you got to understand this. There are people today who will tell you, oh, well, you know, Israel's gone, and the church replaced Israel. Not so. So those Old Testament saints, you know, they're going to be in heaven, but they're going to be like second-rate citizens. Not so. 
not so. No, we're all saved by faith in Jesus. And we're all saved just the same. There's only one way, right? Jesus. But listen, there are different groups of us. There's different dispensations, different times in the way God was working in the world. And I would say to you today, if you're a born-again child of God, you live in a great time to be saved because you're part of the body of Christ. You're part of the bride of Christ. So to sum it all up, rejoicing in heaven because God will judge sin and wickedness. Rejoicing in heaven because the marriage supper of the Lamb. Whole bunch of rejoicing going on in heaven, isn't there? Whole bunch of hallelujahs and a whole bunch of singing. Man, it's going to be good to be part of that. If you're here this morning and you're watching online or you've heard this and you're saying, boy, I'm not part of any of that. Can I, can I plead with you right now here in the balcony down here? Examine your own heart. Make sure that you're saved. Make sure that you have surrendered your heart to Christ and you, you let him be Lord and you ask him to forgive your sin. Listen, Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sin and mine. Matter of fact, John tells us that Jesus died to pay the sin of the whole world, which means anybody can be saved. As I pray, would you accept Christ this morning? Online, would you bow your head now? Would you pray to accept Christ? Would you ask him to save you today? Let's pray. God, it is incredible that you would reveal these things to us. You put them in your word so we can read it and understand it. And thank you, God, for blessing us with it. God, it does make us sad to think that there will be people, maybe even today in this room or watching online, who will walk away from you. God, they need to be saved right now. They need to ask for forgiveness, and they need to ask Jesus to save their soul. They need to put their faith in Jesus right now, and they won't. God, I pray you would convict them and deal with them and draw them. Holy Spirit, I ask you, God, to draw upon their heart and draw them to saving faith in the only way to be saved in Jesus Christ. God, we look forward to all that you have in store for us. God, help us to be faithful in these days and in this time. Lord, so to be honored in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. But stand, if I can pray with you or help you, if you need to be saved, you come. I'll be glad to help you.